So it's been destroyed, uh, but we have not been persecuted heavily yet. And yet we find in the book of Revelation that <clears throat> the souls of the martyred saints will be crying out here at the end because of persecution and martyrdom. And Christ himself said very clearly there in Matthew 24 that after we see earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and all these things that we are seeing today, that then they would come and try to kill us all personally. So that martyrdom spoken of in Revelation may have partly occurred, of course, in the first century A.D. when they were persecuting and martyring Christians, Paul himself being one doing it. But it certainly has an application here in the end time because that persecution and martyrdom was pretty much finished by the time John wrote the book of Revelation. And therefore, it was an end time book for those at the end time. Uh, church history had moved on from the early New Testament church by close to 100 A.D. It only lasted about 70 years, which is kind of what it's done here at the end as well. <clears throat> and we have almost a completion of 100 years uh, total like Noah's time was. So we're going to see uh, a great martyrdom of anyone who calls himself a Christian and of true Christians of the 90% who stay in the world and do not respond to God's calling when he calls and stirs the 10% to come. He knows who to stir. He knows who to leave behind and put the pressure on and hope that they repent before being killed. But this is what is directly in front of us. So let's take this fast on Monday seriously because it has very strong implications for us. It's not just a rehearsal of something that happened thousands of years ago, but it's very real and very here, and part of it is not quite here, but is very, very near. So this is the reason God told us to keep these fasts is so that we might be reminded of the application of them in our time. God is timeless, and some of these things that we read about in the Scriptures happened once, and they happened again, and they happen again. So there's not just one, but maybe several fulfillments of quite a few of the prophecies. And this is one of those that is being fulfilled in our time. It wasn't in... 1200 A.D. or 1400 A.D., but it is right now, so it is very timely. So, beginning Sunday night, tomorrow night, we have a 24-hour fast of the fifth month. Now let's get on toward sermon. We've been going through the book of Ephesians. In the first three chapters... Paul basically is talking about what God has done for us, how he planned it long, long ago, and was then beginning to fulfill it, especially in the New Testament church, and then even more in some respects, especially here at the end time, to wrap things up. And the book of Revelation was written again to the end, and if he's, I mean, Revelation 2, they're talking about the church at Ephesus, 
uh, he mentioned the same aspects John did that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians once he gets into it as to what their real problems were and what they needed to do. But for the first three chapters, there are hints of what maybe needs to be done, but it's primarily about what God has done, how he's planned it, uh, the incredible opportunity that he has given anyone whom he has called, and how we ought to respect and cherish what he's done for us, and love him for it, and give all of our attention, number one, to him. That's the first three chapters summarized very quickly. Now let's move on to chapter 4, which begins with, I therefore, the prisoner of the eternal. So, now he again calls on the authority that he has been given, and how he himself is a prisoner of God, a slave, one who is at God's direction to do everything that God says. It is a voluntary enslavement. God had invited him and us to be a part of what he is doing. Well, I say it's voluntary. In one sense, with Paul, it wasn't completely voluntary. Uh, God just flat struck him blind to get his attention. And then, once Paul began to realize what was going on, he did volunteer. So ultimately, it was voluntary, even though you might say, well, striking him down didn't look too voluntary. Well, it got his attention so that he could and would volunteer. And he did that to one degree or another with all of us. He had ways of getting our attention. Some of them were pretty dramatic, some not so much so. But he had to show us where the truth was. And it was pretty startling to most people who began to learn the truth because it was something that they had never been introduced to in much of any way, uh, in whatever church they were in or not in, that truth was simply not there. The understanding of God's plan was not there. The Jews might have had a little more because of their somewhat comprehending the Old Testament, but even they did not understand the plan of God. Never have uh, in the past and still don't. So, this is a miracle, is what Paul has been getting across. So then he says, therefore, and when he says, therefore, uh, that is an attention getter. Because therefore means that considering everything that has just been said, you now are going to be compelled to do something. So he gives understanding, he gives inspiration. He gives motivation, and then he starts getting down to the things that need to be done as a result of the things that God has done for us. So he's going to make it clear here that we owe God. He does not owe us. We have to give back for what he has given to us. 
We do not love God because we're so wonderful. We love God because he first loved us. You couldn't have loved God before he loved you. Some people think they may have loved God from the time they were a little child. No. He loved us from before the very creation. Before we were ever born, he loved us because he set it in process so that we would be born. So that human beings would be here and he could begin to work with them. So he loved us before the foundation of the world was even set. And anything we give back to him is indeed that, giving back what came from him. It even says, it is not our faith, but his faith. Well, how so? He formed the plan. He believed he could accomplish it. He had faith in his capability to do what he dreamed, to do what he thought, to do what he then said and proclaimed and said, let it be done. And it was done. So that kind of faith and confidence and trust that he and his son's capacity and ability is what made it possible for all these things, beautiful things on this earth and out the heavens that we see, to be done. So that faith, that confidence that they had was then manifested in the things that they created. So the faith by God, in God, and through God was there long before Adam and Eve and us. So he has to give us belief and trust and understanding and without him doing so, we wouldn't have it. And he told us that faith comes through his word. Well, what did he do? He gave us the written word and he gave us the testimony of the creation. Both are there to build our faith that there is a God that there is a being who could do all this. Now, a lot of people write a lot of books, and you might say a book alone cannot be that faith building. Well, it can be. And when he begins to show you what that book means is when you begin to have some understanding and build a trust, a belief in God. Somebody can read a scientific journal and they can get it. In other words, somebody's explaining how something works, so they read it and then they understand maybe how to build it, how to make it work, because it's been explained to them. It's not written in parables. It's not written in such a way that they can't understand. It's written in a way to cause them to understand. But God's word was written here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept, and in parables so that they might be snared and taken and not understand unless he opened their mind. 
So trust in the plan of God, trust in God himself then, came from him. It's not something we generated. <laughs> it isn't something that somebody told us when we were five years old as a God, and uh, we suddenly had faith. Faith from God, the faith of God, is very rare indeed, and Christ even said, well, I find it when I come to the earth. So it's not something you've generated if you think you're that spiritual. It's something that came to you when you began to have your mind opened and somebody showed you the truth of God from the Scripture. And once you understood the basics that were taught to you by men from God, and you had the Holy Spirit with you and later in you, then you could read and understand the Scriptures much more on your own. But you had to be led there. You had to be shown. And the kind of faith that you and I need is a living faith whereby, from the words of God and the creation around us, we have come to trust and believe in him. And this word that we're reading from today is written in such a powerful way that when you do understand it, you can go from the book of Genesis to Revelation and all in between, and everything fits perfectly together. Even with some translation uh, difficulties here and there, you can't miss the flow because it's there. And a few little technical things can be cleared up by looking at Hebrew or Greek. But you don't need Greek and Hebrew in order to understand the Word of God. It fits together so well that 15 scriptures will explain the one unclear one and make it clear. He's written in so many different ways. So you don't have to have a concordance. You don't need to know Hebrew. You don't need to be... You read Greek, you don't have to be mighty and noble and learned. In fact, Christ made that very point when he selected his disciples to turn them into apostles. He took just average fishermen, tax collectors, average citizens who were not schooled, and in fact, when they began to speak in tongues in Acts 2, the people said, these guys can't do that. They're just fishermen. They haven't been taught these things. They must be drunk. Because there was no explanation in their minds how these fishermen and tax collectors could be doing what they were doing and continued to do. And people were healed, raised from the dead, in fact, on several occasions by God working through those men whom he had called just from the run-of-mill people. And that's what he's done with us, he's given us the truth. So Paul said, recognize this, appreciate this, be so very thankful for this, and since you then have that mindset, that frame of mind, which he illustrated in the first three chapters. Therefore, here's what you need to do. 
I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. People speak of their vocation, uh, whatever it might be, in politics or science or construction or whatever we've been trained to do. Uh, we speak of our life or our profession, and this is a way of life. The Apostle spoke of it as the way, the way to live, the way to govern ourselves, the way to act, the way to think. So it's not just a little knowledge here and a little knowledge there, but it is a way of life, and it involves every aspect of life. How you work, uh, marriage, family, children, uh, the things we entertain ourselves with, the things we do not only at work and how we do them. God even tells us how to work and how to play and what should be allowed and what should not be allowed. So it affects absolutely every aspect of life. Now, people will gladly, I, I suppose gladly, Except certain instruction and guidance, as long as it isn't something that affects them too much personally. But the minute the preacher starts talking about something dear to them, maybe a sin, maybe a fault, maybe a problem, then you've done quit preaching and gone to meddling. But we need to understand and accept that this way of life affects everything. And God has instruction on everything. I read an article this morning, uh, very, very well done, showing about how America and Europe are falling apart, and it's the end of the Western civilization. They called it, uh, let's see, Euro-Sodom and in America. What's, what's the other word? Gomorrah. Amara Gomorrah or something like that. Just sort of fused the words together. But he showed the very basis of it was the coming apart of the family. And once you didn't know who a father was and you didn't know who a mother was and the children had no one really to relate to, uh, we began to go into the problems that we have today and the confusion of gender and the confusion of the job of a father or of a mother. And we have just, just degenerated into almost utter and total confusion today. And it's becoming more and more and more apparent as it goes on. But once you destroy the family, you have destroyed everything on a moral basis, on an intellectual basis, everything is just gone. And that is Satan's goal, is to destroy the family, because the God family and us being part of that family is what God based how we live on. And when you, or when Satan, began to truly destroy the family, you begin to have what we have today. Uh, the gay movement, the pride, the rainbow. They've taken something very, very special to God, the rainbow over his throne, 
and turned it into the most evil, filthy, wretched symbol you can possibly imagine. So, we are in a vocation. We've been called to a very, very high calling. It doesn't matter what part you are of the church, whether you're a toenail or a brain, it is a very high calling to be part of the body of Christ. You look at your body and everything on it is important to you. Uh, a branch off a tree laying on the ground is not that important to your body. But every piece of your body is very important. So when God has called you into the body, it is a very special thing not to be taken for granted at all in any way to be utterly thankful, to be zealous and on fire, to be part of the body. And he uses that analogy because he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Zeal, energy, uh, is needed. Now, when your body is working well, you're feeling well, you have lots of energy, you have lots of capacity to do, but when your body begins to age, it begins to fall apart, it begins, the, the body parts don't work as well as they used to, then it's hard to do the things you used to do. And we all begin to experience that as a part of life, is that uh, we need something more than what we have. <laughs> and God has built that into us so that we might learn that lesson. And you like it when your body works well. I can remember running in races and doing sports and when my body was in top shape and healthy and I was very young, uh, I could do things that I can barely remember today. certainly can't do them anymore. But I liked it when everything worked in sync and worked beautifully. Well, that's the way our spiritual needs to be. So it's a vocation, and we are to walk worthy of it, not let down, which these people were doing. They'd lost their first love. So then he says that, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Uh, why do we get upset with each other? Why do we get offended? We are told in Scripture not to be offended, let nothing offend you. And we are also told do not give offense. So we're to do neither one. We're not to take offense or give offense. And when we are offended, that is contrary to our vocation and our way of life that God has called us to lead. And when we offend others, we are also breaking that trust and that agreement of how we will think and how we will live. Now, when we get angry and we get offended at somebody because of some slight or some thing they said about us or some gossip about us or whatever, we feel justified. Yes, they really said that about me, and I'm angry. <laughs> well,
Well, that's your pride. That's your vanity. That's your self that is in your own way when you get that way about something someone said. Now, the old saying was pretty much true. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Uh, they can hurt your feelings, but they're not going to hurt your mind, your body, yourself, unless you let them. You don't have to let them get you all uptight just because somebody thinks you're not what you think you are. So he said, do this with meekness and long-suffering, patience in other words. Giving each other space and opportunity for bearing one another in love. You forbear something. Somebody gets angry, they say something maybe they shouldn't have said. It's going to happen. Every one of us does it at one time or another. We'll say something we should not have said. Well, it's your job before God not to be upset about that to forbear for that person, to be patient and long-suffering with them. They're the one that made the error. They're the one that said something that was out of school, shouldn't have been said. Why let it ruin your day? But that's what you do. If you get upset about it, get all angry and uptight about it, you're not ruining their day, you're ruining your day. Because you feel justified because they were wrong. Well, maybe they were wrong. But why make it your problem? Let it be their problem. And it is only your vanity, your ego, your sense of self that has been trodden upon. And we're supposed to be getting rid of pride and vanity and ego in any case. So when somebody gossips about you, says something slanderous, says something true or untrue that you don't like to be repeated or heard, here's your chance to be humble, to be meek, to be patient, to be loving and kind and caring, and show them love instead of anger. This is part of our spiritual growth. And when we catch ourselves doing this, then this should prove to us that we still have growth to do. If we act like a four-year-old or a six-year-old when somebody says something about us, then we have quite a bit of growth that needs to be accomplished. So then it is not, as I said, their problem, it becomes our problem because we were offended. And God tells us very clearly, do not be offended. So I don't care how you want to justify it. If you let your feelings get hurt and offended by something someone has said, then you are in the wrong. Now, you can also offend others by saying what it's true. This is true. I'm not telling false tales about somebody. This is true. I saw it. I saw him do it. I heard him say it. So 
you repeat it. Then you are the one who is in the wrong, and you are creating offense. <clears throat> we have to control our minds and our emotions in both directions. And that is very, very difficult for a human being to do. To take whatever comes and take it in the right spirit and attitude. And he says, if we're close to him, nothing shall offend us. So if you get offended, if you get your feelings hurt, then realize you are wrong. And you need to grow and overcome and change. And when you offend others, realize you are wrong, not just justifying it. So what if it, so what if you say about them is true? Did it need to be said? Probably not. 99% of the time it didn't need to be said, true or untrue. Because they may have repented before God, they may have realized their mistake. They may have said, oh, God forgive me, I shouldn't have said that. We've all caught ourselves, haven't we, saying something and just as it even came out of our mouth, we said, oh, shouldn't have said that. Or maybe it's a day later you realize, oh my, what did I say? So, give people space, give them room. If we don't, we don't love them as ourselves. Because if we're offended by someone else, we don't like to have those things said about us. So if you say something about somebody else, and it's not something you would want to be said about you, then you're showing partiality, and you're not loving them as much as you love yourself. Because you don't want your feelings hurt. And if they hurt my feelings, I'm going to hurt their feelings. Right back. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So when you start repaying wrongs by yourself reacting, you're taking God's job. His job is vengeance, not yours. Why do people fight? Because their egos have been hurt. Their feelings have been hurt. And they're going to get even. You hit me, I'm going to hit you. You speak bad about me, I'll speak bad about you. We have this sense about us that requires us to get even. And that's nothing but our vanity, our selfishness. That's all it is. So that's why he says this in verse 2. He says, therefore, when God has done for you what he's done for you, and you are in a thankful, inspired, motivated attitude to serve him with all your heart, then you will be poor in spirit and humble and meek. And you won't take offense. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He says in another place, to, to be at peace with all men as much as is possible. And vanity, pride, ego get in the way of that. And that is the basis of nearly all fighting. So we are to work to be in the unity of the Spirit. The Father and the Son are totally unified. 
And Christ prayed in his last prayer, in his last instruction, uh, in John 16:17, that we be one as he and the Father are one. So it is an endeavor. Uh, an endeavor is a work. It's an act. It's a thing you work at. Uh, it does not come automatically. Peace is an aberration. Peace has to be caused. Peace is not natural. What is natural is pride, ego, vanity, and hurt feelings. That's natural to human. And it's carnal, and it's against God. It is enmity to God. But peace among men is totally an aberration. As soon as Adam and Eve partook of that fruit they were told not to partake of, they immediately had carnal minds and began to blame each other and God and the devil, anybody but themselves. And that has been with us ever since. Cain killed Abel because of that. That fight was over vanity and ego, hurt feelings, because God honored his sacrifice and not mine. Well, he didn't give the kind of sacrifice God wanted. He couldn't kill God, so he killed his brother. And that's the way it's been from Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, all around, all the way down to you and me. And our reactions, unless motivated by the Spirit of God, are carnal. And they're against God. So he tells us here to work at keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the war makers, not the offended, not the ones who get their feelings hurt. That is not God's way. That is carnality. That is Satan's way. Work for the bond of peace, so that we are at peace one with another. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. There's only one way to go. There's not two ways or three ways or six ways to go. There's God's way. One way. It's the only one that counts. And only one hope of our calling, and that's to be in the first resurrection and become the bride of Christ. And his bride must be of one. In peace, in harmony, in unity, throughout eternity. And we're not going to achieve that perfectly between now and the time of our change, but that change will be complete. And we'll have no more human nature, no more pride, ego, and vanity. And he goes on. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So if you're converted, you've been baptized and received the Holy Spirit of God because of your repentance, then... You have his spirit dwelling in you. Now, 
you have to react according to the spirit instead of according to carnality. And the trouble is, none of us are converted. Converted means changed. And we are not completely converted. We are not completely changed. And we keep our carnality, our humanness, our Satanism keeps trying to come back. It tries to rule our will. It tries to rule our feelings, our affections, our relationships. It tries to come back in everything. So Paul had to say that he fought himself daily. It's a fight to have the Spirit come out over the flesh. It's a struggle, day in and day out. And sometimes we just kind of give in to our feelings and our emotions and our weaknesses and our pride, and that's why we get offended and give offense. That should not be. We have to be living together in peace and happiness. That takes work from everyone. It's easy to blame everybody else, but everybody else isn't the problem. Every one of us is still the problem, to one degree or another, because we still all have a certain amount of our carnality that we have not brought under the rulership of Christ. It's not their fault, it's my fault. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of the Spirit. Grace is unmerited pardon. Every one of us is given pardon that we do not deserve because we are not what we ought to be every day and in every moment. We stray in thought or in action. And we then are given grace that we don't deserve according to the measure of the gift of Christ. He decides how much and when to forgive. Wherefore he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. What did he tell the disciples he would do? He says, I'll send you a comforter to guide you, to lead you, to instruct you, to help you in this vocation that you've been given. So he did send the Holy Spirit on there in Acts 2, and it's been around ever since. Now that he ascended, what is it but, the, but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? For him to ascend and convert us, he had to first come down here, and he had to die so that our sins could be forgiven. Because there is no way that we could give, be given unmerited pardon or grace unless there was some way to pay for what had been done. So his life was far, far, far above and more important than all of ours put together, and he could not forgive us without payment being made for sin, because that's a law. The wages of sin is death. 
if any of us had ever sinned or have ever sinned, then that law has to be fulfilled. It has to be paid. And he did it for us, giving up his life and dying for our sins. So we don't deserve his forgiveness and his grace. He created the conditions whereby it was possible, and then he followed through and did it when we began to repent. And that's what he expects of us. Not that we are perfect, but that we are repentant, that we are changing, that we are overcoming, that we are growing. And then he says, okay, I will apply my death in their behalf. I had to first come down and die because I can't suspend the law. It's the law of the universe. It's like the law of gravity that we deal with here on this earth. It isn't the, look, the gravitation law isn't the same once you get in outer space. But here on the earth, it is a law that God has said, and you cannot transcend it. You can't overcome it. Uh, it's always there. You might have a way of flying above the earth, but if that power is taken away, gravity is always there, and it will bring you down. Even if you're flying in an airplane, you will have to come down, because it can't fly forever, and get away from the gravitational pull. It's always there. It's a law. And Christ had to die for us so that we could be forgiven. So we don't deserve grace. It's something that is a gift that he gives. And his life was a part of that gift. We cannot take it for granted. Wherefore, he, well, let's see now. Uh, he had to first come down. <clears throat> verse 10. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. So the plan and the purpose devised by the Father and the Son before the foundations of the earth were ever laid they knew that he would have to come down here and give up eternal life and immortality in order to save us. He knew that ahead of time. So that he might fulfill everything in their plan. Now what did he do? <clears throat> he worked through men. You go through the Bible... And he always worked through specific men that he called for a purpose. He called Moses to be the leader. Okay, whatever the title might have been, he, didn't, he wasn't called an apostle, he wasn't called a king, but he was the leader that God appointed. Okay? And everybody was not Moses. Everybody could not claim to be Moses. Nobody... But the one God appointed could do that job. And he called Moses. Remember the burning bush? It wasn't something that Moses dreamed up that he should do. 
or could do. It was something that God called him to do specifically. And when anyone challenged that and thought they could do a better job than Moses, they got in trouble. Korah and Abiram and all those that went with them, what was it, 250 princes, I think, they all got swallowed up in the earth. Now, God was also using uh, Aaron and Miriam, and he had called Aaron to be high priest and the spokesman. Um, uh, Miriam and Aaron did the same thing, really, that uh, Korah did. But God was also using them, and their punishment was different, because they also had a calling and a job to do. So it was just something like leprosy, not the earth opening. And then God healed those things that he did to them to get their attention. Now, we need to be thankful for that example, because God is not dealing with us the same way he is with those in the world. And if he's called us to his purpose, then he may deal a little differently with us, and maybe a little more patiently and mercifully than someone else. We still have to be very careful, and Aaron and Miriam should have been much more careful than they were. So he's introducing a topic here. Uh, let's go on and read it. Verse 11. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. God gave these offices. He created these offices. And he gave some to be this, some to be that, some to be something else. Not all, but some. Okay? Let me elucidate on that just a little bit, since it comes up at times. You can look up the Greek, and you can see that the word apostle means one sent. And sometimes people will take that definition and say, well, God calls us, called us all, so God sent us all, so we are all apostles. So they begin to, in their vanity and their ego, think that they don't have to listen to anybody else because they themselves are an apostle, just because they were, in the Greek, one sent. Well, you can twist words, you can twist Greek, in Hebrew, and God told us not to do that, not to argue and fight over the meanings of words. His word is very clear, and it interprets itself. Here where somebody says, well, the apostles won sense, so we're all apostles, all you got to do is turn back here to 1 Corinthians 12, and it clearly shows that we are not all apostles. It does say some right there in Ephesians, not all. Here he's talking about the unity of the body. Verse 28, well, verse 27, you are the body of Christ and members in particular, different members. God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, 
And after that, miracles, gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. And then he asks the question, are all apostles? Well, he's just giving you a whole list of different offices and opportunities in the body, and they weren't all apostles. Apostle was just one of them. So we're not all apostles, not by any stretch of the imagination. Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have the gift of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues or do all interpret? No. The Bible answers itself very clearly. How can somebody say, well, we're just all apostles, so I don't have to listen to anybody? Then they'll quote, says that, uh, uh, well, there is the place where Paul says, can any man learn except he have a teacher? And these people will say, well, I don't need a teacher because I have the Holy Spirit. Yet the Bible says we need teachers. And why does he put these offices in the church? And only those whom he appoints are the ones he sends for that job. An apostle, sure, it means one sent. But if you put all the scriptures together, apostle as an office is one sent for a specific job. One specifically called for that job. Were all the people of the early New Testament apostles? No, they weren't. He calls a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and that type of people, trained them, and then sent them to teach the church. They were the ones who were true apostles because they had been sent for a specific job. Now, when somebody says, well, I am an apostle because I've been sent, that is the height of arrogance and presumptuousness, and that is as witchcraft. You better be very careful to set yourself up in a position and say, you are this. Because many people have done that in the past, and some of them were killed for it by God. Struck dead. Now, why does he give these offices? If you're an apostle, and you're a self-sent apostle, one sent, you sent yourself. It wasn't God that sent you. Since you're an apostle, then are you also a prophet and an evangelist and a pastor and a teacher? Are you all of those? Well, he said some. Now, why? For the perfecting of the apostles. <laughs> it's ludicrous. No, he, he gave those offices for the perfecting of the saints. The saints are the ones that are called to be members of the church. So, yes, if you're baptized and converted and have God's Spirit, you are a saint. You're not a saint in the definition of the Catholic Church, but you're a saint in the definition of God. But you're not an apostle or a prophet unless you are called to that job from being just a saint, let's say. All apostles are saints, but all saints are not apostles. 
So it's for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That we're all members of the body of Christ, but we're not all the head, we're not all the foot, we're different body parts. Go back to 1 Corinthians 12 again. This should be self-evident, it should be so clear, there shouldn't be any question, so why am I blathering on about it? Because people don't pay attention to what God says, but what they want to believe and what they want to be. Why is it that people say, well, I don't need a teacher, and then they start teaching or writing articles or trying to influence other people? That is a form of teaching. So why, if you don't need a teacher, do other saints need you to teach them? If you don't need one, why do they? But almost invariably, people who say, I don't need a teacher, think they know it all, and then they try to give it to somebody else. This is, well, it's almost laughable, but it's so bizarre and so weird and so carnal and upside down but you can't laugh at it. It's sick. And it's demonism. Because presumptuousness is the same as witchcraft or demonism. It's what it is. So if you set yourself up in a job that God has not specifically given you, then you are of your father, the devil. I don't think I can make that much clearer, so we'll move on. For these offices were given to some, verse 13, that we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect or a mature man, it really should read, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're to become like him. And he has put men here to teach us so that we might be reminded, we might be encouraged, we might be inspired and motivated to do this. He put those offices there to do that. And it works. However, imperfectly, imperfectly, because we are all imperfect. And Herbert Armstrong understood that very early in his ministry. He could go out and do a tent revival teach people truth, and they would accept it, and he would go back to his home, and it would fall apart and dissipate, and people would forget. They wouldn't carry through. So he knew he needed pastors there. That's why he started the college. He called it liberal arts, but he knew good and well he did it to train ministers. <laughs> it was a religious school, whether he you believe it or not. It wasn't just the liberal arts college. It was a ministerial training program. So that people could be reminded and taught and corrected and all the things that someone who is assigned to preach and teach the Word of God needs to do. It has to be done. You can't be mealy-mouthed about it. He said, spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Don't spare, but let them know what they need. 
And you know what happened to all the prophets of old who tried that? Most of them were killed because people didn't want to hear it. But they trumpeted it anyway. And if they killed them, so what? He's going to kill the two prophets at the, or they're going to kill the two prophets here at the end as well. Big deal. Just human life. It'll end, and then it'll resume in three and a half days in glory. But we need to be being perfected, to be made spiritually mature. Perfect is a bad translation, because throughout the Bible, hundreds, thousands of passages show that as human beings, we will not achieve total perfection in this life. Nobody has but Christ, and nobody will. So when it says perfect, the that doesn't fit the rest of the scriptures. Mature does. So we're no longer babes, as Paul said in Hebrews, but we're mature Christians. Uh, and someone who is mature is responsible. They act right. They do right. They don't act irresponsibly. They don't speak irresponsibly. They speak in a mature way that creates peace and harmony and unity and love is how they speak. So we're all supposed to be growing to be like the Father and the Son are, like Christ was, the fullness of Christ. And also to keep us from being tossed back and forth with poor doctrine, poor teaching. That we henceforth be no more children, see, mature, not children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. God appointed his ministry to preach his word. He did not appoint Methodists and Baptists and Messianics and all those other groups out there to teach his word. They were not sent by God. That's why the Apostle John said very clearly, if they come and bring not this doctrine, don't listen to them and do not receive them into your houses. And we still have people, even in our group, who listen to other ministries who do not agree with the teachings that God has clearly given us through Herbert Armstrong and the growth that we've had since. They'll still listen to other preachers. They'll still listen to other teachers. And that is directly contrary to what God himself, through the Apostle John, said. You let them in your house by radio or tape or television and whatever, and you are going contrary to God himself. And John said that, but not as loudly as I just did. But God means that. And he has sent a ministry to teach us and guide us in the right ways, and if we listen to anything else, we are disobeying God. Did you hear that, I wonder? Or do we go ahead 
and say, well, this doesn't hurt, this, this sounds good. Those people are still followers of Satan because they don't follow the truth of the living God. Have we ever gotten it through our minds, like Arthur Armstrong told us a thousand times, that the Protestants worship their father, the devil? There is only one door, and that is Christ himself. And it is, has to be according to his word. And he has trained people in his word and appointed them to teach his truth to his church. And if you listen to any other voice than that which he has sent, you better repent. I don't even read articles on the alter alternative news that appear to be written by a minister or someone who had a dream or a prophecy or anything to do with religion. I won't read them. I won't listen to the audio. I'll read something that has to do with the New World Order and the things they're doing to the food and the weather and the on and on and on it goes. But even those, if written by what appears to be a spiritual teacher or leader or minister, I don't read them. I do not want to open myself to be deceived by any kind of spiritual teaching that I know does not originate from God himself. Okay? Don't be a child tossed about to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by craftiness and cunningness, by those who deceive, and you don't know. If you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. I don't know what time it is. Huh? Okay, I'll try to finish this chapter. But speaking the truth in love may grow up to him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. You're not going to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ if you're listening to anybody who has not been sent by Christ to teach you. And he has done that. And if you haven't found them, you better find them. But you cannot, for recreation or entertainment, or maybe to learn a little something here and there, listen to those whom God has not sent. Satan is very cunning, he is very crafty, and he can lead you astray so fast you, <laughs> you won't even know it until it's too late. We've got people who used to be part of the church of God who now believe the earth is flat. They now believe all kinds of weird, strange doctrines that are not biblical that they got from other teachers somewhere else. Have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with their teachers. You can be led astray as sincere as you might be and seeking truth as you think you might once you've found the truth, stick to it. 
Don't go looking for something else. And Paul is saying that. Grow up to be like Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the uh, effectual working and the measure of every part makes increase of the body to the edifying of itself in love. Once you found the truth, grow in it. And we need to be being melded together as one in harmony and unity and love instead of listening to somebody somewhere else that God has not sent and hoping we might learn a little something here and there. That's ego and vanity. We've got enough of a job just trying to get along and love one another without listening to others. This I say, therefore, and testify in the eternal, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, thinking they have better understanding. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. We had people who were in the true ministry of God who went under this upside-down, crazy, one-God thing. Some of them more intelligent in the ministry bought into that cockeyed, upside-down, crazy thing and denied the Father and the Son being two in the God family. It's so easy to be deceived. And you get the vanity of your own ego and mind thinking you're pretty smart. God revealed to Herbert Armstrong the family of God and the father and the son and the bride, the children, brothers and sisters, very clearly, and it's all through the Bible. And then they come up with some of the most ridiculous ideas about it. And it's contrary to Scripture. Who being past feeling had given themselves over to lawlessness to work all uncleanness with greediness, breaking all the rules. But you have not so learned Christ. Where did they learn Christ? From the apostles, Paul, who had been sent. Not from the teachers around them somewhere. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Conversion is changing our conduct, and we still have some to go. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. If you lost your first love, be renewed. That you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We don't deceive each other. We 
tell truth, we get along. But that doesn't mean that everything that's true needs to be repeated. He tells us in Philippians 4, 8, to think on those things which are good and pure and right and clean, the positive things, not the negative. Where he says, well, we speak the truth. Well, this is truth. Well, but it's also negative. And it doesn't need to be said. That's not what Philippians 4, 8 is saying. And you're perverting it if you use that justification. For we are members one of another. Fingers and hand have to fit together. Then he says, Be you angry and sin not, and let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Are we going to get angry at times? Yeah, our pride, our ego, our vanity will get in our way, and we'll be angry. But keep your mouth shut and get over it. Repent by sundown. Don't let another day go by with the attitude you've got. Get over it that day. You can't hold a grudge for a week or a month or a year or 40. Get over it that day. Be done with it. Neither give place to the devil. <laughs> and that's what you're doing if you stay angry, you stay offended. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needs. Ideally, we should not need to borrow. We should be in a position to lend. That's what God would have us be. To work and be successful so that we do have. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. Now there's Philippians 4, 8 right there. The, the positive, the upbeat, the good side. Not just because it's true. I can repeat it. No. That's an excuse. That's an abomination as well. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until the day of, re of redemption. How do you grieve the Spirit of God? By having the Spirit, by being led by the Spirit, and then going against it. With our covetousness, our lying, our cheating, our adultery, our uh, putting God second in whatever we do, that grieves the Spirit. That grieves Him. So don't grieve the Spirit. Keep the law. Speak of the things that are good and uplifting and helpful, not the things that tear down. And then he emphasizes that. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. That gets rid of a lot of the works of the flesh right there. There's no room for that stuff. There's no room for negative speaking and gossip. It just isn't. It doesn't fit in the scripture. Be you kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. 
pay it forward. Do the same thing for others that he has done for you. Or if you don't, he will quit doing it for you. He made that very clear. So do as he did, and forgive others as he has forgiven you. Then you're getting on the right track toward the kingdom of God, thinking and acting as Christ did. End of transmission. Or end of sermon. Unmuted.